Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media, where black and brown voices truly matter. Welcome back to another week of A Whole Mood. This week, we're going to do part two of our family edition theme for the month. And this week's guest, I have a mother. So this isn't like a regular mother. This is like a mother who dared to change the narrative from previous generations and her approach into raising a millennial child and as well as a Gen Z child. And I thought the perfect parent was none other than this beautiful young lady that I met at church. When I tell y'all charismatic, when I tell y'all beautiful spirit, when I tell y'all just all around bubbly, jovial, love and light type of person, I do mean Doriel Larrier. Hi, Doriel. Greetings and salutations, my dear brother. How you doing? I'm good. I just coming back today from a wedding. I sung at a wedding and the wedding was so beautiful Mm -hmm. and it was just a positive welcome mat into this hectic week. It was a great way to kind of bring the positivity and kind of smear it throughout this whole entire week because I got a whole lot of stuff going on this week. And it's good to talk to you, my dear. <laughs> you know we're going to cut up. You know we're going to cut up. I've been looking forward to this for days. Yes, we have been talking about this for at least a month now. And that's another thing I also want to say. Thank you for all of those who reached out to me with ideas. I really appreciate your enthusiasm and wanting to be a part of the show and eager to tell your story and share. I really appreciate you guys. So let's just go ahead and jump into it. So what are your thoughts pertaining to the parental shift and the cultural shift from generations before us? Hmm. There's a story that needs to be told. And there is a story that has been hidden. How soon is too soon to tell the story to our, and I'll speak of my culture and community, to our, our black and brown young sons and daughters. I've literally just been in conversation about this over the past couple of weeks. There is a conversation that has always been told, let's say before the first quote unquote trip to the grocery store or the trip to the corner store. When you finally say whether or not, depending on the community of your child is, let's say either nine or 10 or 11 and it's like hey you know like go get me some soda from the store go pick up some milk and butter or some eggs from this from the corner store the grocery store and and the parent or the the family member gives you know the five dollars and ten dollars twenty dollars whatever and there's this pause before that child leaves and i know it's on every single specifically a black parent's heart 
do I have the conversation now? And what is that conversation? That conversation is when you get there, number one, will you be treated properly? Number two, will someone follow you? And I'm always like, when do we have these conversations? I remember when I was growing up, I grew up in the 70s. Everybody, all Black families across the country sat down and watched the same series every year. And that was Roots. We all watched it. And the day after Roots came on, (laughs) you go to school and you just kind of look at the other people in your class and you look at your teachers just a little bit differently. (laughs) As a parent raising the Gen Z, the millennials, because, oh, we're past that. That was then. This is now. And then we have what happened or what has been happening over the last couple of years that has been right in our face where it's like, "Mm, we can't ignore that. So that story that has been hidden is a story that needs to be told. But now it's like it's safer to have it. But there's still like this, everyone is equal. Everyone can do everything. And then you have to have these hard and fast conversations where your child is then faced with, but I thought you said, I could be anything. I thought you said I could go anywhere. I thought you said. So that's the tough thing. It may make someone feel limiting just because they're black. It makes them a target to feel racially objectified. Yeah, this this just another level of uh, one would say coddling or or comforting uh, or or emotional and self esteem prep that has to be laid in into into your parenthood. You only you can only protect them for so long, but at some point when they leave your house, they are then subject to beliefs of people who are not in the same community. Yeah, I guess my thoughts pertaining cultural shift, it's more behavioral, and I think that that supersedes any culture. I think you could be black or white or Hispanic, Chinese, whatever. I think it all ties to this. So I watched this documentary. And I mentioned this in a previous episode, Roxanne, Roxanne, she mentioned on Nas's documentary on Netflix that the 60s and the 70s, where you had moms and dads still living in one household and raising a child, but there were so many factors of dysfunction that occurred in this era, whether if it's you had an alcoholic father or if you had a father, you know, who works and he goes out in the world and a mom who stays home and the father most likely to have a double life and the father ended up you know bringing outside kids into his main home and the woman having to accept these kids or the woman accepting the fact that Mm -hmm. he does have a double life and she is stuck in a rock between a hard place because she's having to accept this because she has nowhere to go. The 80s, where you had fathers completely stepping away from their responsibility and raising a kid, and you have more of a social norm of single moms. And then in the 90s, the social norm of both parents running away from their responsibility and leaving the responsibility on their parents. So you now have grandparents raising these kids and the generational gap between raising these kids how it takes effect for generations to come i just think now uh, that there are many other stories and many other versions of parenting and family and and uh, community which is now growing on the other end now this is the tough part 
and this has to do with parenting. The story may be if so-and-so on the block sees you and you're not doing right, quote unquote, they have the right to at least check you whether that check is going to be, I see you, or that check you is, hey, what you doing? You know, you're not supposed to do that. Or that check you is, I'm going to physically snatch you up out of you physically harming yourself because you know, that's not how we get down, quote unquote. That's the story. But the reality is when you go to try to check somebody because you know good and well, they're not, shouldn't be there, shouldn't do that, shouldn't be dressed like that, blah, blah, blah. Now it's, don't talk to my child. You can't say this. You can't say that. And in the back of my head, I always say, but if I'm walking past your child and I see that they're doing the wrong thing, you really want me to keep going because the police is right behind me? So if I then say, well, I actually saw law enforcement take them up, address them, handle them the wrong way, who are you going to get mad at? You're going to get mad at me? But didn't you just tell me that I shouldn't talk to your child? So there is a community, as a community, we ha- there has to be an agreement that some things are, of course, allowable, other things may not be, but there has to be an agreement so that we can take care of us because we can't keep pointing to law enforcement or the, the them, whoever the them is, and saying, oh, they're doing this, doing that. When you have people who lovingly are there to try to support To pick and choose that support, mm, that's tough. You're depending on, quote unquote, that village. Well, that village really realistically needs to be redefined (laughs) because, again, people will pick and choose. You can speak to my child at this point, but you can't speak to them at that point. So how many kids do you have? I am a mom of two princes, as I say, Prince M and Prince N. I love them dearly. They are 25 and 20. So I officially no longer have teenagers. Yes. I made it. I made it. I made it. The moment that my oldest turned 18 and graduated from high school, and then the moment that my youngest turned 18 and graduated from high school, there was a huge, I don't want to say a sigh of relief, but in essence, it was a sigh of relief. And when I said to other Black parents, I said, guess what? I made it. I made it. I didn't have to explain what that meant because they knew. But to those who are listening, if you do not understand what I mean by that, got through high school, they turned 18 on the good road, making as good decisions as they can, and they've both graduated high school. That was just such a big, I made it. Yes. So with having all boys, what was it like to come to terms in regards to your approach on how you chose to parent? So this is something I don't really talk about a lot. I will say that they are children of two different relationships. So tactfully saying, and I'm sure that, you know, the the other parents will hear this at some point. So tactfully, one can be present, another can be involved, another can be engaging. One can be present to say, yes, they are the other biological parent. And that can be, you know, like my name's on the record. The child carries my last name in whole or in part. Uh, You know, we share DNA. We share physical characteristics. Then one can be involved. And that involvement can look like I may pop into the parent uh, teacher conference, you know, once or twice in life. 
Let me just leave that at that point. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, my parenting and uh, cooperative parenting can be a dramatic series in and of itself. I have spent actually time in the court system advocating and standing up for that which I believe to be the best decisions. So sometimes when you have to choose to advocate for what you believe is uh, right, let's say from a governmental perspective um, and a family rights perspective and the child rights perspective, but then you spend so much time in the court that you then ignore the actual basic necessities and the love and the comfort and the reassurance of the child, to an extent, there are moments that you just kind of like have to raise your hands in the air and say, listen, enough is enough. I, I don't want to do this anymore because the energy that it takes to stay in court, you then wind up coming home and you're just so exhausted and the child or the children, they just want to play and they want to go outside and you're just like, I, I'm emotionally spent because I'm trying to quote unquote fight for what you were supposed to have and, and receive and being told by somebody who has no connection to us. And then I have to like, you know, split you in half and shove you on one side of town or in one borough or in one state. And there's just a lot. This is, so I do totally understand when families say, I'm not going to deal with the court um, and we're going to handle this. And if you have a mature community and if you have a mature partner, then that can work better. But then you have older family members who say, no, if this is going to happen, then you take everything to the court. Ah, you know, it's, if, if you can figure out how to do for self, then there are moments where staying out of court is a good thing. I've been told that the word single parent has to be redefined, that if the other parent is fully engaged in the child's life and the rearing, then that parent should not say that they are a single parent they should say that they are raising or co-parenting. I think the new phrase is that they are co-parenting, but the two parents do not live within the same household. Again, and I think this episode is, it kind of is an interview style because I wasn't raised by either of my parents. And so I think in hearing your perspective, it is very enlightening because initially my mom, she did want to raise me. But I think something happened and was debunked um, in her change of her heart and mind because, you know, I ended up in Mobile anyway. And I don't think she came back from leaving my dad until 2005, and I was already 14 at the time. So a large segment of my childhood was already gone. So I think it'll be interesting to hear your perspective in how you chose to parent differently as opposed to previous generations before you. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. And I think now, I, I'll say, I'll admit to this, that I struggle with what other women in my shoes attempt to do to fill the void that in their own female mind thinks exists with placing or connecting additional males around to make sure that the male children have, you know, steady, consistent, positive, you know, lead, male leaders in, in their community. I said, if I'm guilty of anything, I'm guilty of locating and identifying and circling my sons with black males 
who are in who are in leadership positions in their own career, in their family, in the community, in their field, who they can look to and say, oh, that's uncle so-and-so, or that's, you know, Baba so-and-so, or that's godfather so-and-so, or that's brother so-and-so. Um, and I have all of these males around me. There is no shortage if I need to go and ask the male kind of questions. And they can never say that they grew up and they, whether or not they felt like they wanted to have a close relationship with their father. Um, and if they feel that they did not, there is no way that my sons can say mom didn't attempt to connect us with other, you know, black men who were upstanding and, and, and good citizens and responsible. And um, just those things that young black males, they need a lot of. Yeah, I can understand that. I, the good thing I can say about my mom, she never influenced my perception on my dad. So I think her idea was she never wanted to get in the way of what my experience of my dad and let me have my own experience and learn for myself on how to interact with my father. And I think her decision in not intercepting between that bond was appreciated exponentially for me because... I didn't feel in my life that she was of influence to me having my own relationship with my dad and let me have my own experience with him. So do you think your expectation of raising a kid would be different if you would have had a daughter as opposed to sons? Okay, so this this is actually a really good tea. This is really good tea. So there was this there was this article in a in a magazine um, and I can't remember if it was Ebony or Essence. And this was, it had to have been in the early 80s. And the article says, you know, we raise our daughters and we love our sons. That article like hit me at, on the side of the head because I believe it was at a very, um, I'll just say at a very open-minded point of my life. And when I heard it and I, as uh, my educational training was in child development. And so again, it was parenting relationships and the impacts of parents' uh, ideologies and what they put onto their children in terms of rearing, child rearing practices. We will expect our daughters to, of course, quote unquote, learn how to keep house and to serve the, 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 the man's food and uh, have hot dinner on the table when they get home and all, all these uh, kind of domesticated things. And, and in the loving of our sons, oh, they're allowed to, you know, to sleep late, to go out and let, oh, let boys be boys. But girls have to always, quote unquote, keep themselves together and tight and, and or, you know, like keep themselves up. But guys can make, and I was like, wait a minute. I don't, I, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. So when I got to college and I started asking those questions, I thought, well, so when the male and the female are supposed to, quote unquote, connect and get together and start to develop the, that relationship, the female is all prepared to, let's say, do the domesticated thing. And the male is expected to what? To wait for that? In my child rearing, I said, and I still say today, do not wait for a female or, you know, a woman in your life to come in in order to be that domestic partner. I need for you to be able to prepare your own food. I need for you to be able to learn how to wash your own clothes, to, to keep, your, you know, the, the house to an extent as clean as, you know, as it can. 
your own self, to do grocery shopping your own self. I said, because if for nothing else, if you do engage with another person and you know you're you're living in that same household with them and it's a female, don't put on that female that she's supposed to do X, Y, and Z. If she chooses to quote unquote make your plate, then fine. But guess what? You need to make sure you make her plate as well. And so practice on mommy. You know, my sons now, I will say this and I'm okay with this. My sons can food prep me under the table. Like they have their own regimens. You know, one of my sons pairs food to the teaspoon, to the quarter teaspoon, according to a recipe. My other son, say, cooks in the spirit, like just looks at the stuff in the cabinet, just like, oh, a little of this, a little of that. And both of them can cook me under the table. In terms of like organization in, in the in the household, both of them have like an eye on things that I don't have. And I'm happy and I'm excited because I said, if you, you know, get married and your wife, let's say if she works as much as you do, don't wait for her to come home and to make a three, four course meal. You get started, you know, if, or, you know, if you're going to be growing a family and she's a pregnant or she's raising the children, don't expect for her to, you know, take care of the whole house and do all the laundry and whatever. And the only thing that you're doing is going out to work. You got to be joking. So my approach is when we're making food, guess what? No, you either help prep, prepare, or you clean up. If I'm in the kitchen, you're in the kitchen. When I bring groceries home, I, I just pull the car up to the house. By the time I get upstairs and park in the car, the groceries need to be put away. But there's no question. There's, there's no question. And you know what? I do think we do pacify our sons and raise our daughters, just like what you said, because I believe that boys have a idea that the world should bend at their feet. And I think it hinders their growth and it stifles their mindset on taking care of their self. I think, you know, I've seen in so many instances of men not knowing how to take care yeah. of their self, yep. whether if they, they don't know how to bathe, whether if they don't know how to clothe their self, if they don't know how to cook for their self. And they approach commitment, they re- approach relationships in a way where people have to be at a service capacity to them for them to even commit I to totally someone. Agree. And I believe that that is askew and it's very telling on how they were raised. Mm. I, I I agree with that. And I think whoever listens to this, if y- y'all want to put this down on your little notepad before you come <laughs> call me, I'm okay with that. So what was it like for you growing up? My parents married and until the quote unquote, until the death, did they part? And so my father left this earth in 2012. So it'll be nine years. So my parents were together for 41 years uh, until the time of his departure. And um, it was definitely the, I would say the stereotypical, you know, father goes to work. My mother worked as well, but there was the, if she was going to get home later than he was, and I was home from, you know, high school. It was, oh, Doriel, go take the vegetables out, you know, or uh, go start the part of the dinner or what have you and, and uh, make sure that the food is ready. And in my head, I was like, why am I doing that? <laughs> uh, but, you know, like, oh, you know, well, the, you know, because your dad will be hungry. And in my head, I was like, wait a minute, doesn't he know how to cook? And I recognized that uh, and my father was raised as the baby of 11 children in a Caribbean household 
here in Brooklyn, five boys, six girls, 10 of them lived in the same household at the same time. But there was definitely a demarcation of the boys do this, the girls do this. And so there was an expectation, even though my mother reminds me up until this moment, he, my father never asked the question, where is dinner or where is my plate? But the understanding was he would just come in, you know, take his work clothes off and kind of just like sit in the living room or sit at the dining room table, not looking for the plate, but just present. And so my mother would, you know, sort of wrestle around and get everything done and then we'd eat. Um, and there was definitely a demarcation of, you know, my father took care of, because I was even asking questions when I grew up. I was like, well, you know, who, what kind of bank accounts do y'all have? I, at a time, I mean, of course, this was not a question that you asked when you were in high school, at least I didn't. But I guess when I started like raising my own family, I said, well, like, you know, what kind of, how did you handle your biz, your, your monies? And when my mother was okay with talking about it, she said, well, you know, there was a joint account and then we had separate accounts. And I was like, oh, she goes, huh, funny though. There's nothing in the joint accounts. Well, <laughs> I said, wait a minute, what does that mean? That means he had his money, I had my money. And so again, as I listened to that, of course, I thought I needed to pattern myself after that. When it came to rearing, I always said, that which you expected me to do because I was female, if I was male, would you do the same thing? And she didn't really have an answer for that. And I said, that's what I'm going to do differently because I do not agree that females should be the only domesticated person. If we've learned nothing else, if my sons have learned nothing else from me, they have learned that as mommy, that while mommy was the head of household, or the downside would be mommy may not have always been available whenever we needed her or as often as we may have needed her, but she made sure that we had a roof over our head. She worked two or three different things at the same time. Um, when she could, she took us, you know, different places and we had these little fun things that we would do simple, tiny things. You know, when she was able to, we went out of the country, we had our passport stamped. I hope that that's what they see. So you said that one child is 20 and that's a coincidence because this year marks the 20th anniversary for the 9-11 attacks. He was pretty much a newborn at the time when 9-11 occurred. So I have yeah. two questions. One what was the conversation like to the kid, to the older child? And two, what was it like post 9-11 to have that conversation with your child in the world as we know it? So that day, of course, lives in the minds of everyone. And there's not enough hugs that can go around to console the families. That day was the first day that I actually left my youngest child. So I gave birth a month before 9-11. And the weekend of that event, my oldest son, he was at his father's house. He was five and actually on that day, I, I was doing some consulting. And so it was the first day that I left my youngest child, you know, with my parents, you know, we, I'm like, oh my goodness, like, oh, I don't want to leave him. Oh, it's his first day. Whatever. He, so he was only about four. He was literally four weeks, four weeks old. Uh, when I got to the place I was consulting at, television was on all the people who were in the in the space at that time sort of looked at the television screen and I kind of peek over and I see what just looked like a movie I was like well that's weird and then we turn the radio on 
and there was a strange sound on the radio. You hear the announcer, and the announcer said, and it sounded like the the radio shows from the days of Alfred Hitchcock. So you hear someone saying, wait, wait, there's a news break. And then you hear someone like the, the clatter of someone's feet running into the room. And I was like, that's so weird. That sounds like one of those Alfred Hitchcock, you know, movies. The tower's been hit, the tower's been hit. And I was like, that is so crazy. Why would they say that? That's not a nice thing to do. Then a few minutes later, they like, oh my goodness, the other tower. And then I said, oh, I go to the telephone to to call my family to find out where is my child. Lines are dead. I was like, this is weird. I go outside in the street. And with the road that I was on, you could actually see above, like into Manhattan. Like you could see the skyline. And it was this strange cloud. And I was like, that's really weird. What is going on? You know, of course, that day unfolded. We were sheltered in. Everyone was like, just stay where you are. And the only thing I could think about was where are my children how are they? What's going on? And so, of course, by the time that later that evening when I did get home, of course, I just wrapped my arms around my baby. And when I heard the voice of my young, my older son, the only thing that we told him and, you know, his father and I agreed was, you know, you're, you're okay. We're here. That's the only thing we could say. It wasn't until, because, you you know, you, you do what, you know, it was a newborn on one hand and then a five-year-old. And as long as he was with people who loved him, that's all we really wanted them to know. So it wasn't until, you know, probably like weeks later that we had a conversation. Um, and it was whether it was about safety and protection and like, are your parents going to be there for you? We had to open up that term parents to say family and to say community. Yeah, I was 10 when all of this happened and living in Alabama, of course, we even left school early. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I don't know how my teacher received the news, uh, whether she was in the teacher's lounge and it was on the news. Um, And we were probably at PE at the time. But I remember her giving an announcement to the entire class to say that there has been an attack on the towers in New York. And I think majority of the class had no clue what she was talking about. But me living in New York, I knew exactly what she meant. However, I was so confused and didn't understand the severity of the issue. And part of me was kind of like, well, why would somebody run into buildings? Was it not by mistake? Why would they want to do that on purpose? You know, but what I can say after that attack, I've had plenty of nightmares thinking that a plane was going to crash into my home. Wow. Now that you're saying that, I don't, for me, I didn't have that concern. I do strongly believe that people who live in New York, (laughs) we have this like additional level of emotional armor. First of all, we believe that we are impervious. We believe that ain't happening here. That happens to somebody in a third world country. Nobody's going to be dumb enough to come and do something like that to us. Like we are New Yorkers, right? And we walk around with that boastful pride. As they say in the song, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. If you can survive here, (laughs) you can survive in a whole lot of places. Yeah, but... Yes, New Yorkers are tough and they're prideful of where they are and they have that tough guy 
persona. But people here in New York are very paranoid well, right, and very right. temperamental. Oh, and yes. I can understand yes. why, because New York is a target. Right. I think, you know, for the most part, only probably like three cities are an actual target. I feel like New York and D.C. are nine times out of ten going to be the most likely to get an attack. Right. And, and that's why I, I think there's almost like, and someone who is probably a psychologist can probably break this down. To an extent, when we have that tough guy mentality, I think the little part is that we believe it won't happen here. But I think deeper inside, we are saying that out loud because we want to try to convince ourselves of that. Because we know that we have already been under attack. But I do know, like, for example, right now I hear a helicopter. We know that we, it's almost like a trigger that when we hear those sounds, there's a tiny part of us that our heart skips a beat a little bit. There's a part of us that um, we take an additional breath. There's a part of us that kind of looks out the window. And like now we think, and more more New Yorkers particularly, we think about this. We have a prepper mentality. Y'all not catching us out there (laughs) again. And if it does happen, then, you know, I was slipping. But if you grew up during that time, because of that situation, there was a comfort in giving our children technology so that we can keep in touch with them if something like this were to go down. I need to know where you are. These cell phones or whatever is to keep in contact. And when they're like, oh, why do you need to know where I am? Guess what, sweetheart? Because a situation like this, especially because we live in New York, things happen. And we don't want to scare our children. We don't want to give them that frightened uh, personality too early on. But there are times where we have to actually tell the story. Like I said at the beginning of the broadcast, there are stories that are told and there are stories that are hidden. And at what point do we release the stories that have been hidden in the past in order to protect our children? So before we go into reflection question, could you share where your children are now? Both my sons, uh, we actually just spent part of the afternoon together. So that was very, very warm and fuzzy as a mama. Um, so my older son is on his music career. He has already built a band and he's following a passion and I'm happy about that. And he's now in a audio engineering program in order to sort of learn the technical part of the music industry. And so I'm, I'm happy that he's, he's figuring that part out. My son is also enrolled in an educational institution and halfway through. So he's on his third year. He's using his talents and his skills, the technical or computer engineering field uh, that I pray that he will be happy with. Um, I want both of them differently than what I did when people in my age group were told, you can be whatever you can be. Right. All right. So let's move on to reflection question. Question one, how would you rate your mom's parenting style? Oh, you're going to have to give me a scale. I don't, I, what, what, what's my scale? What's my barometer? Between one and 10. Okay. One being what? 10 being what? One being horrible, 10 being perfect. Okay. I would probably say an eight. Wow. That's pretty good. I would give my mom a six and I give her a six in grace because my mom, however, she wasn't much of a mother to me and my sisters. 
she really wanted to do better with her grandchildren. She wanted to do better by them because she realized it was too late to salvage or create a motherly bond with her actual children. So once her grandchildren came around, Mm. she wanted to, you know, have a better experience. Wow. Okay. Okay. So question two, what is some feedback you would give the generation before you? Wow. Ooh, that's deep. When you say that the child can be anything they want to be, if they pick up something or if they come up with an idea that sounds in your mind out of this world, don't laugh at them and help them connect to the people or the places or the opportunities that will put them on that track. So a blanket statement was made, oh, honey, you could do whatever you want. Or like, you can be whoever you want to be. You want to be the president? Great. But then if me, if I find out that being the president, that means I have to go to college, go to grad school, go into business degree or law or something like that. I have to travel. I have to study another language or whatever. Yeah, in your limited thinking, if you're like, well, child, I don't know how you're going to do that or how you're going to do that. Are you sure you're going to do that? Mm, don't do that. Just find out who they need to connect to or organizations they need to be in or rooms that they need to be in and allow that to fuel what they want to do. That's what I would tell them. I agree. That's probably why I'm so shy now. It's due to a defensive mechanism for people laughing at me for just daring to dream. I've dealt so many times in my household, once you have passion for something, it's funny or it's comical to them or it's almost like it's a joke for me to dream about something and have passion for something. Question three, how have you been balancing the care of your mother and the care of your children? That's really tough. That is really tough. Um, I recognize that I am in a sandwich generation, caring for my parent, caring for my child or my children. Uh, And there are times there's still, there's very little time just for me. It's tough, but I try to insulate myself uh, at moments and just have a little me time. And it may not feel like a lot. And if I want to just roll over and do nothing and not show up for anybody, just let me alone. Let me just, I just need a nap. Um, but the expectations of caring for the parent and caring for the children, oof, that's a lot. It's a lot. I do want for both to understand that there are times that I just need my me time. And uh, then there are times that we could all chill together. Yeah, and that's something that should be discussed. And that is definitely something I'm going to talk about in the next episode. But I believe right now we are experiencing a large gap. We are now in a generation where planned parenthood is a thing, where generations before us, you know, they nine times out of ten, they married their high school sweetheart and they got married immediately after high school and they just started having babies. Um, And then even in terms of like the medical assistance that we have regarding fertility now, Generation X is, they're still having babies and they've been 20 since 20 years ago. So I think that that says a lot in terms of parenthood as well, because one would say, you know, the norm was being middle aged at 50, you would experience like 
hardships on juggling a parent that's elderly and may need more assistance, where now that's happening at an early age and you have young adults now dealing with what is perceived to be what a 50 year old is perceiving in regards to their parents. Right. And that's a, that's a big, that's a big deal. If you are caring for your family, your parents, and you're, there's still some life or some certain things that you still want to do. It's a struggle to say, Hey, you know, I really want to travel. I really want to like go live somewhere in a different country or a different state. And you are probably the, the, the main or the primary person caring for them. Yeah. That's, it's a lot to contend with, a lot to contend with. So what are your thoughts on women taking charge of planning motherhood? Oh, wow. Planning motherhood. Wow. Because I believe that in theory that women need to own their own bodies, they should be in charge of what goes in and what comes out. They need to be in charge of that because they are the ones that have to deal with the, the chemical changes. They are the ones that have to deal with the emotional ebbs and flows. They are the ones that have to deal with the physical changes and shifts. They have to deal with that. No one else lives in their body. Of course, that's a touchy subject in in this day and age. But the bottom line, you're the one that goes through all those things during that nine-month period. Or for some people, it's shorter, you know. But that impact of that young being that grows inside of you, that's a lifetime. It's not just a nine-month. And so I'm actually even speaking to, to about people who are surrogates. Let's say people who are a foster or, or adoptive parents, you know, if you are making the decision to care for another living being, the impact that that child has on your life is a lifetime. I agree. I believe women should 100% be in control. And I think the reason as to why women's reproduction parts is becoming more of a political topic than anything is based on a conspiracy. Well, I would actually love to your opinion. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. The conspiracy from what I heard is pretty much it's an agenda to create a higher population of white Americans. At using our last election as an example, white people are now being outnumbered and they feel like they're being misrepresented due to the fact that they're being outnumbered. I think it is due to a high level of white women going out to go get an abortion for whatever reasons, you know, and I think they want to create a higher population of white citizens and stopping abortion would create that high population by stifling white women to go get these abortions. And that's the conspiracy as to why this Planned Parenthood type of thing is so controversial. Wow. I, so I actually did not hear that. I um, I would have to, to, to take a moment to ponder that. Of course, there are some people that I know who'd be like, mm-hmm. All of that. Marinate on that. <laughs> and like what I said, I don't say that as facts, but that's a conspiracy that I definitely read. What is your advice to generations after you regarding parenthood? Ooh, ooh, geez, this is deep. Spend more time on the little things that will make your child smile while they are young. Things that matter do not cost a lot of money. I say that to my peers all the time. Yeah. Children do not know whether or not you have money. They know 
whether or not you have time. So if I take my child for a walk to the local pond, and we live in, I live in Brooklyn, so if I take him to, to Prospect Park and we sit on the side, you know, at Prospect Park and we look on the ducks, everybody knows the duck pond. And if that makes them happy, taking a trip to around the world or on a cruise or on a, that, that to a four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old. Nah, if they like feeding the ducks, go feed the ducks. There are other things that it is a good idea to expose them to, but the things that really matter aren't things that cost a whole lot of money. I agree. It kind of baffles me when people have these elaborate first birthday parties and it's no judgment. I mean, if you got it, then flaunt it, you know, but I would think, you know, a one-year-old, they won't remember and they definitely don't care. They would rather have a box than all of these toys. But I do understand, you know, to celebrate life is a blessing and the world is very stressful and it is a blessing to even have a child full term. So, you know, how big the cake is, they don't care. They, they really don't care. They don't care. Do they want to cuddle with you? Do they want to make, you know, hot chocolate with the marshmallows in it? You know, do they want to pick strawberries with you? Do they want to go apple picking with you? Do they want to like count the fish? Do they want to feed the ants or watch the ants crawl up the tree? Those are the things. Question six. As a single mother, have you planned your caretaker demands and your final wishes? Oh, wow. Every once in a while, I have this conversation with them and I say, listen, you know, you know where, let's say, the papers are. I am in a process of making sure that they don't have to address my belonging like I think I have to address my mother's belongings, if you know what I mean. I'm an only child, so it's just me. And anything that happens, I'm going to be the person to make the decision about. I don't want my children to have to go through that. As I make decisions about investments and purchases and what have you, I'm doing what I can to say, is this important that, you know, if something happens next week, will they be able to either continue it, keep it up, or will they have to argue and fuss and fight over what's going to happen with this now? So what would that be? Would it be like assets or a car? Let me just say product. What this real life thing is, this is what it means in real life. This is what it means to me, and this is how it can be helpful to you later on in life. So this is how you address it. But also, you know, just making sure that there are other adults in their life who know me and know my wishes, who will help guide them. That's important. Well, thank you, Doriel, for stopping by. I appreciate it. And this is for all the mothers out there. We know it's hard. And we know it's all due to your love and your dedication to your kids, whether if you have a partner or whether if you're out there doing it on your own or if you're quote unquote co-parenting, right? <laughs> we recognize you. We embrace you. We love you. Would you like to promote Doriel? Oh, would I like to promote? You can find me on social media at learn to grow you and the you is a letter you 
uh, I host a a live stream. Some people may call it podcast, but you see my face. You don't you don't see my face on this podcast. <laughs> but I host a a live stream show called the Digital Couch, where I do have other inspirational leaders to come and inform, instruct, and inspire their community to live life a little better than they did yesterday. And then you can catch me on Monday nights on Facebook and YouTube. And I also have a business called Seeds of Imani, which are products, protocols, and practitioners to help you live your best life. And so uh, I support wellness. And you guys, be sure to virtual our virtual mood board. That is Instagram at a whole mood podcast. I'm Alon. That's Doriel, a whole mood. Mean Old Lion Media, where black and brown voices truly matter. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.